1: I'm Stephen Metcalf and this is the Slate Culture Gab Fest She Said, He Said edition. It's Wednesday, November 23rd, 2022. On today's show, She Said is the new feature film recounting the struggles of two New York Times reporters as they attempt to break the Harvey Weinstein story. It stars Carey Mulligan and Zoe Kazan. And then on Hulu, we have Fleischman is in trouble. It's a limited that stars Jesse Eisenberg and Claire Danes as a now-divorced couple who have come to loathe one another. It's a serial comic and very Rashomon-like anatomy of a deteriorating marriage. And finally, what to make of the fact that Joan Didion's estate, art, furniture, books, and iconic pairs of sunglasses fetched crazy sums at auction? We will discuss, but first joining me today is Julia Turner, the deputy managing editor of the LA Times. Hey, Julia. Hello, hello. And uh, always psyched to have Jamel Bowie, New York Times columnist extraordinaire, back on the show. Of course, the late alumnus too. Hey, Jamel. Hello. Psyched to talk these movies and TV shows. Shall we make a show? Let's do it. All right. Well, She Said is a journalism picture in the classic style of like All the President's Men and Spotlight more recently. Uh, in Atmosphere, it's a thriller. Uh, in Execution, more of a behind the scenes procedural, journalism procedural. Here we follow as two Times reporters, in real life, Jody Cantor and Megan Toohey, uh, in the movie played by Zoe Kazan and uh, Carrie Mulligan. Cold call. They knock on doors. They pound the pavement. Uh, and they're also agonizing over a A huge moral dilemma. In trying to get their sources, women who are afraid to talk, to talk, they understand the risks they're putting themselves and these women at and are unsure whether to move forward. The movie is directed by Maria Schrader, who's best known, I think, for the Netflix hit Unorthodox. Let's listen to a clip. In the clip, we're about to hear Jodie Cantor played by uh, Zoe Kazan, is convincing Megan a played by Carrie Mulligan, that it is, in fact, eminently worth doing. Let's listen.
0: What is it exactly that we're looking at here? We're looking
2: at extreme sexual harassment in the workplace. These young women walked into what they all had reason to believe were business meetings with a producer, an employer. They were hopeful. They were expecting a serious conversation about their work or a possible project. Instead, they say he met them with threats and sexual demands. They claim assault and rape. If that can happen to Hollywood actresses, who else is it happening to?
1: Julia, let me, let me start with you. Um, I made the obvious comparisons to Spotlight and All the President's Men. How did you feel this uh, stacked up relative to those and as a, as a movie in its own right?
2: I think this is a very, very good journalism movie. I was both gripped and moved by it, although I'm excited that there may be some contrary opinions on the call. But what I actually think is revolutionary about this movie is it is the best depiction I have ever seen of modern working parenthood. Like The way in which the movie, very quietly and very subtly and not too ostentatiously, renders the fact that the people who are doing this work, who are being professional, who are finding... Satisfaction and stress in their professions are people with partners and children and emotional fluctuations and postpartum depression, as the Megan Tui character uh, is depicted as having in the film, and um, who do the work anyway. And it's not the, you know, there have been some films where that is the point of the film. Oh gosh, can she have it all? How do you do it? And this movie just depicts that it is what modern work is for, you know, workers of this kind, white collar workers, um, often involves two income families and, and two working parents. And the juxtaposition of that thematic material with the story that they're working to get which is fighting for the right of women to pursue their professions without fear of harassment derailing their careers or setting them off on entirely different paths and um, quashing their artistic and professional potential, I found incredibly powerful.
1: Yeah, Jamel, I mean, the extreme wisdom of Julia's response to this um, wise movie is interesting to me. It seems to me what ties those two things together powerfully that makes the movie either work or not work, right? If you, if you buy this, you buy the movie, is um, the cost – as they keep saying in the course of the movie, these two journalists, you know, it, 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 the, it, the very power discrepancy that exploited these women in the first instance, right – typically kicks in and buys or bullies them into silence. And so they're faced with a collective action problem. Like, we need everyone to jump into the pool at once or nobody is going to do it. And anything short of that could result in compounding the initial crime. Like, you might be re-victimizing the victim. So you feel the moral quandary at the same time you feel this thriller-like suspense of not only will X person, it's not deep throat, it's not like one person, it's like, will essentially an entire community break its conspiracy of silence and bring down Harvey Weinstein? Did you find this effective in that regard?
0: I didn't. Um, I, I, I take Julia's point about the film being a great depiction of professional class working parenthood. uh, I think it is. Um, I I do think that that aspect of both characters could have been like better integrated into the investigation or vice versa, the investigation better integrated into their experience as working parents and as partners in addition to as journalists. But I, I, I guess my... My issue with the movie is that I felt that so much of the investigation part of it was just like very didactic and very sort of like, um, very preoccupied with just explaining things to you in info dumps, um, mm-hmm. and not so much in, uh, depicting the process of discovery it does that it doesn't not do that and the times when it does it i think it's it's one of the movies that it's strongest um but i think that there's also too much of you know we're gonna have a phone call and there's gonna be pretty much one person on the line they're just gonna like give you you know a block of text Um, that you can then move forward to basically you have, you have a question or something, this block of text will answer that question for you. And I think you can pull that off once, maybe in, in, in any kind of movie, I think you can pull that off once. And like these sort of journalism, I call them document movies, um, uh, because it's not, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be about journalism, but like this kind of structure for a film involves people sifting through documents, um, you can do it twice in maybe one of these movies. But I think this the, the script kind of leans on this a lot um, rather than show you the investigation. Uh, my sense, like the movie's over two hours long and it seems to me that they maybe had a hard time either cutting or streamlining because um, I'm not necessarily sure the movie should be two hours long or over two hours long. And it makes me think that part of what might have happened... Is that halfway through the film, Carey Mulligan's character kind of drops out for a while, um, as Zoe Kazan's character is traveling uh, to London, uh, to to Wales, I believe, to San Francisco. Uh, and that I, don't, I haven't read the book on which the movie, on which the script is based, but I, I have to assume that this is how things played out in real life. And I think that there's a certain amount of like fidelity to what really happened. That actually, it's not good for the story or the characters. That I think there could have been some license taken um, to both give Carrie Mulligan and Zoe Kazan's characters just more to do, um, and more better cinematically depict the unfolding of the investigation because I think that's where that's where the I think the movie is at its weakest, sort of like actually cinematically presenting this investigation unfolding and the and the information coming in.
2: I think that's interesting. And your point about the dialogue is, I there's a way in which the film is also functioning as a brief in defense of journalism as practiced in. The 21st century, and and seems to feel an obligation to properly and um, judiciously and flatteringly represent, like the avocation of journalists to uphold the creed and tell the truth and do, you know, there's a little bit of sainthood in the portrayal of um, Jody Cantor and Megan Tui, even as it is depicting some of the th- personal challenges they are wrestling with. But yes, the dialogue with their editors is always like the editor just says the three things that you would say in the lawsuit about how you would defend the story. <laughs> like get the documents, yeah. get him on the record, like get, yeah. you know, like the, 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 the conversations with the editors are stripped down to like, what would you want the ultimate first amendment editor to say? And there's not like, like, um, any any personal foibling there, and I think probably because of that sense of d- desire for fidelity and representing, right? I think you probably could have made a better movie if you're like, what if we told a story that was kind of like the story of how they got the Harvey Weinstein story?
1: <laughs> right. Well, I mean, I would I would definitely say that some of the conversations in the movie sound like what the you know various participants would like Harvey Weinstein's pitbull lawyer to imagine they were, right? Like, they're somewhat sanitized. The kind of cynicism and necessary self-distancing that the journalists, the hardcore journalists I know, practice in order to stay emotionally balanced during the often wrenching process of getting people to talk, Um, it's cleaned up a little bit. Um, or quite a lot, actually. And and results in some clunkers, admittedly. I nonetheless, I found this an enormously powerful movie. Uh, I sat there as the credits rolled, pinioned to my seat, as did, I think, everyone in the movie theater that I saw it with. Um, I, I thought its virtues so completely outshone its obvious defects that it was a success both artistically and and morally. I mean, Spotlight is a very, very clean, very streamlined and almost perfect version of this. And there are all kinds of comparisons you can make there both ways. But I thought there was just a... There was was a resonance here. And also, I'm a sucker for the genre. I've, I've spent my life effectively as a freelancer around journalists and journalistic organizations. I love... All of these discussions, you know, I mean, going back to all the president's men, like what's going to go on A1, on and on and on. So I'm vulnerable to them. I, um,
0: no, don't get don't get me wrong. I, I am also a sucker for this genre. If you have a movie where people are sifting through documents and someone at some point screams, they knew, <laughs> I'm, I'm in. I'm like, I'm there. <laughs>
2: yeah, I mean, it's so interesting, Steve. I love journalism movies. There's so many different kinds with varying degrees of cynicism about the profession. And, and certainly in... Um, calling out the kind of extreme taught journal like editors saying the exact right thing notion of those scenes i don't mean to suggest that they were saying something wildly different but you know there's been a huge conversation in media you know in in recent decades about copaganda right we love cop shows we love crime shows like what are the cop and crime shows really telling us about you know our our criminal justice system, how it works, whether it actually administers justice, and to whom um, and you know, we're all journalists in our own ways, and so possibly we are not the clearest people to look at you know journalism movies, some of which are kind of journalist so i'm I'm curious how you would place this within that question or dilemma of, like, the appropriate way to, to portray journalism on screen? Steve?
1: I mean, it's, as you pointed out, it's inseparable from the um, highly propagandized pseudo-backlash against the MSM and against journalists in particular. I regard them as, as heroes. Net-net, they're obviously like any profession you can name. There are ethical lapses. But journalism, you know, the good journalistic outlets police themselves against it. So I have no problem with the degree of, like, shine to the knight's armor. I, the, the scenes that worked for me, of the procedural scenes, the ones that worked for me best were Dean Becke, the, you know, managing editor or whatever, headed editor of the New York Times, on the phone with Harvey Weinstein, <laughs> which were so great because it's exactly that thrill, right? It's very minimalist. Um. It doesn't feel that sanitized and it's this moment where a person from a highly self-policing, rigorously self-policing, ethical uh, profession is confronting a person who's an absolute travesty of all of those things and has gotten away with it because of his community's moral problems. And Bakay and everything he says is letting him know you do not have the power here now, right? Like you are not going to shape this or me or anything about what we write other than whatever on the record statement you want to make. And it's it's the spot and I don't mean to recenter this narrative on Beck He's not the moral center of this movie in any way, shape, or form. That is simply all I'm saying is that is the moment where the procedural aspect of it to me was very effective because it didn't seem sanitized and it really rang true.
2: Yeah, that scene is really interesting and it highlights I mean, this is the 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 problem with, I guess, drawing any equivalence between what cops do and what journalists do, but ultimately that kind of journalism boss has to, you know, the the profession has to be fair. It's part of its own self-policing that it insists it is fair, but it also gets to decide when it is being fair because it has the power to publish. And that's, that's the saying, no, we have it, we have it to our standards, the story, and you can participate or not, but we're going. Um, And that, it, it, it highlights that sense of the priesthood or the, or the institution having to hold itself to its own standards, whether or not people outside the building respect them or understand them.
1: Right. Well, to me, it was just institute, one form of power, institutional liberal institutional power, for lack of a better phrase, coming up against essentially charismatic, like almost medieval levels of charismatic power and saying, no, you're going to have to actually cede to this. Right. And for me, that's powerful because to me, that is the civil war among the civil wars, one of the big ones that we're currently fighting. And everything's at stake. All right. It's uh, it's She Said. It's in theaters. Check it out. Let's move on.
2: Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night.
1: All right. Now is the moment in our podcast. We talk business. Dana's out, so I'll handle it. Uh, only one item of business to tell you about today. It's our Slate Plus segment this week. Uh, Jamel is with us. We thought maybe we'd return to the topic of Twitter. Uh, Elon Musk obviously is going in uh, <laughs> several directions uh, with it at once. Some anticipated, some unanticipated. We'd really like to talk to Jamel, who's a tremendously delightful, gifted Twitterer, tweeter. He'll presumably tell us what Twitter now means to him, what its uh, demise uh, or slow degradation might mean. And uh, does he have any red lines? Like you cross the red line, Jamel Bowie's out. He's quitting, quitting Twitter. All right. If you're a Slate Plus member, make sure you stick around for that conversation at the end of the show. If you are not a Slate Plus member, you can sign up today at slate.com slash culture plus. Members get ad free podcasts, lots of bonus content like the Slate Plus segment I just mentioned. You'll get to hear members-only programming on other Slate shows like Slow Burn, Political Gab Fest, all the good ones. And remember, members get unlimited access to the great writing at Slate.com. You will never hit a paywall if you're a Slate Plus member, never. I should also mention you'll be supporting our work and the work of our brilliant colleagues. These memberships are very important for Slate. So please sign up today at Slate.com slash Culture Plus. Again, that's Slate.com slash Culture Culture Plus. All right, back to the show. All right, well, Fleischman is in Trouble is an adaptation of a 2019 novel about a collapsing marriage. We begin in this telling with, he said, the version of the story told from the point of view of Toby Fleischman, here played by Jesse Eisenberg. In his mind, at least, Toby was a noble victim of a monomaniacally ambitious woman. His wife, Rachel, played by Claire Danes, in his imagination, we come to discover, had become a money- and status-obsessed harridan, while all he wanted, all Toby wanted, was to be a heroic doctor and a humble dad. As the show progresses, this premise becomes the object of a rather intricate deconstruction by the show's narrator, who turns out to be Libby, Toby's friend, played by Lizzie Kaplan. Shows on Hulu, if I didn't say, and it's uh, an adaptation of a Taffy Brodesser ackner novel from 2019. Let's let's listen to a clip. In the clip, we're going to hear Toby over dinner with friends uh, describing what went wrong in his marriage. Let's listen. Divorce is like that old Othello game. You know, you start your marriage with all the discs white, right? And then there's some black discs here and there along the way. You know, you fight, but ultimately you laugh and it's fine because the board is still mostly white, right? But then something happens and the marriage falls apart, and suddenly the entire board is black. Is that
2: how you play Othello? They should probably change the name Othello. You
1: know? Yeah, so now even the good memories are like tinged with darkness, you know, they're tainted like they were rotten from the start Not all of them. Yes, man, all of them, okay? Now you look back at all those memories like the fight you had on the honeymoon the way you couldn't agree on like a name for your child And suddenly they're no longer innocuous fights anymore. Now. They're foreshadowing I think when we get married, we really have no way to fully understand what what forever means, you know? That's what I'm always saying mm. marriage is for suckers <laughs> How are you gonna know, how are you gonna feel in three times the amount of years you've been alive for? All right, Jamel, let me start with you. Uh, this was a novel, it was a very, very voice-driven novel, uh, as I've come to understand. The narrator of that was a sort of doppelganger of the, uh, the author's stand-in for the author. Uh, not always easy to adapt. They definitely went with voiceover. That was the decision they, they, they made here. What'd you make of this?
0: For being something, for being something that's like pretty much entirely foreign to my experience, uh, affluent white people or are whatever are the Lower East Side—I don't know. I don't know what the neighborhoods are. Um, <laughs> uh, <I've, laughs> you got. I'm going to play up the fact that I'm like a southerner here. I'm just a I'm just a humble country boy. Um, I really enjoyed it. I've I've, I've really enjoyed the. I've, I've seen the. I watched the uh, first three episodes, um, first two. Uh, and I uh really enjoyed it. I i like Jesse Eisenberg, I i like him as an actor, I like Claire Danes, I like the entire cast. Lizzie Kaplan, um, is is great as the narrator, and I have been really absorbed in the story of this deteriorating marriage or this this marriage that deteriorated, and the the kind of almost mystery of um. You know, what specifically precipitated this? In the very clear sense you get from the beginning that Eisenberg's character, Mr. Fleischman, it's immediately clear that his perspective on this, it's very self-involved. And there is a lot that we do not actually know and a lot we're not getting. And I find it very compelling. Um, And this is not normally my cup of tea as far as uh, television goes. Uh, but I found this a very compelling watch. And I think, again, I think all the performances are terrific. I think Eisenberg is very good in this.
1: Julia, let me just turn to you. It's It's got a lot of challenges, one of which is that, you know, for the first couple of episodes, it may not be entirely clear that you're getting a highly interested, subjective account, uh, i.e. Toby's account, uh, of the marriage. I mean, you know, it, especially because this voiceover is a third party who's not toby right so voiceovers tend to be i mean they're either omniscient or they're they're heavily aligned with a character whose focalization is through whom we're getting the movie itself or whatever the dramatic action itself here actually there's a turns out to be quite a discrepancy doesn't really come that clear in the first couple of episodes does it a little disorienting how'd you how'd you find your way
2: yeah i so I read the novel and enjoyed the novel quite a bit um and was excited about the casting for this. I feel like we have to pour one out for dana who who enjoys talking about and looking at the acting of and also the person of Jesse Eisenberg, as she has described on this show um, you know, great cast, totally fun. Interesting story, and I think your your note of mystery, Jamal, is totally dead on. Like what what worked in the book, and part of what propels this story is the sense of like it's a whodunit. It's a it's a psychological portrait of a crumbling marriage, but reframed as two mysteries: one whodunit, how did the marriage end, and who's right and wrong about its demise, and also kind of a where the fuck is she? Because the precipitating incident is that the is that. Rachel, the wife, disappears, um, and Toby is sort of bizarrely unworried about it and just pissed and peeved about it for a while before his friends are like, um, m- maybe think a little harder about that. Um, the, narr- the narration did not work great for me because when you have actors this good, it's kind of a bummer to to not let them and their instruments and their faces and their voices tell the story. Um, so I, I, my jury is out until I watch the whole thing, which I will, because I find it compelling. And yes, um, fancy, fancy New York material status anxiety dramas are certainly overrepresented in Hollywood. But, you know, they're not it's not. Unfun or funny to see the elements of satire there of the you know hedge fund bros getting skewered in their um, whiskey swilling great rooms like that's perfectly fine entertainment. Um, so I- I'm, t- I'm the acting is so good that I'm curious to see whether the show can use the narrative the, the voiceover. She feels a little overbearing in the first couple of episodes to pull off the trick of the perspective shifts that I know are coming from having read the book. So mm-hmm. I don't, it doesn't feel like it's working to me, but maybe it's going to work
1: is yeah. kind
2: of my verdict so far.
1: Um, I will say that it's not working for me after two episodes in part because given how I, I, you have all these ingredients, right? On the one hand, you've got, a social satire of Upper East Side, as you say, just kind of a pitiless social satire of the ultra-rich in Manhattan, right? And then you've got this kind of, you know, put-upon, martyred nebbish, who's a doctor whose place within that social universe is drawn with enormous amounts of care. So he's shown at his job as not only being a doctor but is going above and beyond in the way that doctors scarcely do anymore. He's, he understands that there's a holistic nature to it, that bedside manner is really important, that you have to see the entire, see the entire narrative of a patient in order to properly diagnose them. And he's a generous and kind a pedagogue and mentor. It's not just about treating patients. It's about minting new doctors who have this same set of you know, empathetic skills, Um, In order to be a genuinely good one. So at the same time, he's derided as a complete, like absolute lowest rung object of pity in this world of the ultra rich that he has access to. He's part of by virtue of his kids' private school, you know, which is overpopulated by this upper, upper, upper 0.01 percent and by his wife, who's made it big in her career. But then you have this problem of what's the relationship between the satire, which seems acute and accurate as if it's intended to be a depiction. I mean, it's obviously an exaggerated depiction, but, you know, and this like deep, almost Henry Jamesian intersubjectivity of multiple competing narratives, one of whom it's like, why is it being narrated by this third party friend? Like, why has that friend decided? And it, it, it's just it's. You know, and then, and because you don't really know that what you're going to eventually get is this sort of Rashomon or Henry Jamesian, you know, deconstruction of anything like the possibilities of, of an objective point of view. At first, you're like, why is it just it? Why is it so centered upon his grievances? And why is she so horrible? And why were they ever, ever, ever together? It, I agree with you. It's rescued by the acting, but beyond a certain point, it's definitely got like it is. Jamel, it is placing huge stockpile of TNT underneath the he said world. And you sense, OK, it's going to that fuse is lit. But over the course of two full hours, it's just unclear how that's going to um, unfold. And by the end of the second episode, I kind of lost my patience.
0: I think that's fair. I think that's totally fair. I am. I, um like I like I like the cast so much, basically, and I'm so sort of like intrigued about the kind of like, where is his wife question that that's really keeping me um that's keeping my attention more than anything,
2: yeah. I think the tension the the other tension, which which worked in the book and may turn out to work in the show, is like the satire of the world is so tart and funny in the book. I mean, even just putting her finger on the notion that there is this milieu in which being, a, a, a wonderful and respected and well-compensated doctor is like a tedious humiliation, and the, and the wife character is constantly trying to goad him into more lucrative and unethical jobs. Um, like that's a funny observation. That's like a that's a fu- that's a sharp knife blade satire. There's been plenty of satire of this world, and the what was the Nicole Kidman murder, Hugh Grant's a baddie one, the undoing. <laughs>
0: right. The
2: level, the acuity of the observations in the novel is very sharp and funny when stacked up against, you know, many, many, many uh, criticisms, critiques, satires of this world. It's really good. And I sense in the making of the show this tension of so many lines in the book are just so good and so funny. Why not just have the narrator say them? But I, I do think that the show might feel more ambitious and exciting if it had actually found a way to use the medium of television to convey some of that observation of the world. Because the other thing that it raises is you've got this narrator who is giving you a lot. She's dishing with you a lot. She's telling you a lot about this world. But she's withholding the reveal of how her perspective is is shifting as she's understanding what's going on. So the the, the relationship with the narrator character is a little wild. And then Lizzie Kaplan is a great, great actress. I mean, she's always yeah. good in everything and sort of under, you know, gets steady work and is always respected and yet is still a little undervalued. She's got a bit of that like Judy Greer energy, like, like you know, to, to find more things for Lizzie Kaplan to do. So to see her playing something so complicated is really exciting. And then having the feeling that she's just kind of like reading the audio book to me while while Jesse Eisenberg, like, pantomimes around the Upper East Side is like, uh, oh, I kind of want more. But I will keep watching. Like, I'm into it. Um, and I, I think I'm curious to see. I feel like there's so much skill in the cast that I'm interested to see how they land the plane.
1: Interesting. I will say this, that the sort of preview after Episode 2 of What's to Come For almost no relationship to the two hours I had just seen, that that kept me (laughs) intrigued. It's like, wait, what? (laughs) I just can't put this two and two together and come up with four. So maybe I'll stick with it. Anyway, it's uh, Fleischman is in trouble. It's uh, on Hulu. Uh, Really remarkable performances. Uh, Check it out. All right, well, the author, uh, the essayist and novelist Joan Didion went from admired to iconic. She went someplace mega um, in the last decade or so of her life as befitting an icon, relics, fragments of the cross, locks of hair, uh, in short, her stuff. Uh, In reality, we're talking lamps, sofas, tables, china, napkins, uh, books, and yes, uh, Celine faux tortoiseshell sunglasses were sold at auction. They were gaveled down at sums vaster than anticipated, considerably more than anticipated. Um, Jamel, I've never canvassed you on your Joan Didion feelings. I almost want to start there. Do you have any history with her as a writer, any uh, special admiration for her? How do you feel about Didion?
0: (laughs) It's going to mark me as tremendously uh, uncultured. I have never read any Joan Didion. I have no opinions or feelings about her. I have like zero, complete absence of thought um
1: we could skip that by the way i don't know Jamel. no no keep that in keep that in okay okay good 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 thanks i feel feel like
0: i feel like i appear to be too erudite and i need people to know that my brain is empty (laughs) of many things
1: Ah, ah. Please keep
2: this is this is how you this is how you've done it. This is how you've mastered all of American history and and uh, so much of modern journalism and have so many interesting things today and and all of film history. It's just by leaving out Joan. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. There we go. All right. Well, let me let me try a different angle then. Uh, I, I, you know, there's it seems to me the great virtue of books is that any one. Edition or copy of a book is just like another, so long as the words are the same, right? It's not true of a Picasso painting or a perfor- anything performance based, but literature has this universality and mobility to it. Um, it, it it doesn't. It's not very object based, right? Like, and so in some sense, isn't there something a little weird and primitive about um, venerating an author for their words, right? And yet somehow investing their stuff, like just their their bric-a-brac in some instances with this uh value and monetary value at that or am i just being kind of um puritanical here
0: no i think it makes a lot of sense actually um because we do that with all sorts of figures, right? You know, like we, we we look at presidents, you know, presidents who are who are famous, important, whatever, for what they do, for maybe what they say, for how they act, not so much for their things. But the the artifacts of a president have a lot of value to people. They're, you know, they're basically like secular relics in a lot of ways. And I think here as well, um, it's precisely because Didion is so famous for her work, precisely because people have drawn so much from her work um that her her stuff, her things, um take on they op- become objects of fascination. Maybe we can divine something about what made her mind work. In um, the way it did from that, not just what she owned, but how she used it, how it was placed, like all these sorts of things um, uh, about, about the objects around her. And I think, I mean, I do think that makes a lot of sense. Like I, just looking around my house right now, I'm li- like right next to where I'm recording now is my, I have two bookshelves with like Blu-rays on them and just sort of how they're organized, like all that stuff, like does tell you something about me. Mm. <laughs> it tells you yeah. something about how my mind works. Um, and I, I have to imagine that that is especially true of someone like and the things she owned where they were relative to, you know, where she worked in their house or whatever. They tell you something about her and it makes total sense to me that this would become, um, that people would be, people would want to own this and would want mm-hmm. to covet this.
2: The thing that I keep thinking is, like, the only thing I want to read about this auction is, like, the essay Joan Didion would have written about it. Because, first of all, I think you're right that we have this association with everybody. People collect, you know, baseballs that their icons have signed and touched, like, the sense of of that closeness of possessing an object that was used or touched by someone you revere. Like that's, that's quite common and not that surprising. And then the fact that so many people wanted to possess her sunglasses that they sold for, I think $27,000 is maybe a testament to the breadth of her fan base and the wealth of some of them. Um, But she was so, so able in her writing to describe cultural phenomena in ways that were tart, lucid, and funny um, and very clear, but also to then ascribe to them like gigantic sweeping sentiments about the decline and fall of humankind or this, that, and the other. And I'd be so interested, you know, she, she both wrote smartly about America, its relationship with itself, its direction, its fixation on... Sort of the the material and the manic, and then also so smartly about grief and remembrance, and I'm so curious which of her you know whether she would interpret this through the lens of human connection and mourning, or whether she would interpret this through a darker lens of like American kind of materialism and missing the point point, <laughs> like, mm. and you know the the auction proceeds are going to charity they're going to fund the historical society of sacramento which i'm like you know cu- curious i mean a, a natural follow-up story for a california-based culture department if anybody knows one is probably to figure out exactly what the sacramento historical society is going to do with these proceeds um And uh, the proceeds are also going towards Parkinson's research. So it's hard, you know, it's hard to say that this is all like, you know, for enriching the airs or anything. It seems like a perfectly fine exercise. But I just, I don't know, the thing I found poignant about it as someone who is both a deep admirer of Joan Didion's work and also someone who feels slightly... Suspicious of the like beguiling way in which she made arguments. I just want to know which argument she would make about this because I think it could go so many interesting ways. And I think that to me is like the testament to a writer worth tangling with in your mind is like, I don't know what she would have said. And that's kind of mm. part of what was exciting and interesting about her work to me.
1: Yeah, I, I think the genius of Didion, I mean, it's so, it's so complex um, that it, I don't want to pretend to sum it up with one f- phrase or little pat, you know, formula. But I do think that a serious part of her genius is, you know, she was able to, you know, write, for example, in the '60s about the general nervous breakdown of American society, while making her own emotional fragility a perfect synecdoche for it. Right? It was like she was the part. And there was the whole – and the two were in this constant and dynamic relationship to one another. So she was both able to do, for example, what Mailer did, which was kind of – I mean she never foregrounded herself the way Norman Mailer did. But she made herself a part of her own narrative in a way that felt socially relevant, which is just the f- fucking golden chalice, right? And at the, at the same time, she was very playful and very cunning or the people around her were or, or I'm sure it was both – but, you know, she did not only invest everything she wrote with her own persona and aura, it, it, it was enhanced by photographic images. She was, the, you know, the lens loved uh, Joan Didion, right? And that image of her, the indelible image of her in front of the Corvette Stingray, I think she's wearing the sunglasses in it or whatever. I mean, it's, you know, it, 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 you didn't have trouble picturing Joan Didion the person when you read Joan Didion's word, word on the page. And I think the essence, you know, of the the kind of, you know, lock of the saint's hair or fragment of the cross is always that in possessing this object, I will transfer the aura to me. And that, to me, what I don't like about that is that that's the whole point of having written the stuff, (laughs) right? It's like, that's the essence of reading, right? It's like, it's like, this intimate way in which the words, like literally the 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 stream of another person's voice becomes your own consciousness, which is only reading does that, not radio, not plays, not anything, right? And that's where the aura gets transferred. And that's what the aura is in some sense. To say that that inheres in specific objects, maybe I just have a lacerating, you know, puritanical streak to me. But, but Jamel, for some reason, I can't help recoiling a little bit at this.
0: I, um, I don't know. I, I, I don't, I totally understand the appeal of wanting to own something that belonged to someone you admire and even being willing to spend, um, quite a bit of money on it. Uh, you know, if, if, uh, if, if, I (laughs) if I somehow came into an enormous sum of money and I learned that like, Uh, Henri cartier brisson's leica m2 was like available for auction i would totally buy it um i would totally own it to have like maybe be able to get a sense of the man's genius right sort of like i Mm. i 100 understand um and sympathize with that with that impulse it doesn't strike me as materialistic i mean it does strike me as being in some sense like a little spiritual like a the funny thing about um, uh, modernity, about like being modern humans, is that we often think of ourselves as like so much more sophisticated than people who, uh, you know, kept relics around to pray to or whatever. But we do the same thing. Um, we do the same thing in our own way, mediated through uh, the specifics of a particular time and place. And this is all. This is what this is to me. This is that. Um, for the very wealthy.
2: Yeah, you know, it's funny, Jamal, I follow you on Instagram. And sometimes on Instagram, you sell old clothes, like sweaters or blazers. And I bet some people buy those blazers from you because they admire your style, which is not inconsiderable. But I like bet there's somebody out there who is an aspiring writer who like, I don't know, like, feels good about having a Jamel cardigan and gives, gives that gives them like a little bit of inspiration. And it's like, maybe, you know, I'm going to, I want to find my voice and my expertise and figure out how I can put my, my wisdom into the world. Like, I, I don't know, maybe that's like an imaginary thought poem, but you know, <laughs> p- p- part of the, I have to imagine that some of your fan base, people who love your writing or your photography and the people who follow you for your perspective on the world, are not just buying your used sweaters because they're like, I need a sweater and that's a good deal. And I like that sweater. Like some of the Jamelness of the sweaters must be part of it, right? Yeah.
0: Yeah. I'm I'm sure that I'm, 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 I've never thought about that, but I'm, I'm 100% sure that you're right about that.
2: Well, I've been thinking about this too. Like my mom and sister and I cleaned out a bunch of my dad's possessions. He died in 2021 and we, we went through a bunch of them this summer and I took, he just had a great, he was like a dapper prep and, had an understated style but just had like a big collection of men's shirts for weekend sort of subtle flannels for for dress and he liked to he liked to pink and he liked to peach and he liked a subtle plaid and just this collection of shirts that I picture him in I have pictures of him in I received hugs from him in and my sister and I had this like magical day of kind of divvying them up and we we tried them all on and they kind of look good on both of us in a menswear way. And each shirt knew which of us it was for. Like, we didn't fight about any of them. Like, it was just clear as soon as we both put them on. Like, like the shirts chose us, right? Like, this collection of shirts divided themselves up in this afternoon of trying them on. And I've been wearing them a lot. And they just feel nice. And that's obviously different having, having an object that belonged to someone you knew and loved so intimately. As someone who you admire and know only as an idea or a mind from afar. But... I like the generosity of, of 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 kind of not pathologizing it and just sort of saying, like, yeah, good good on you, person who aspires to mm. Joan's wisdom and hotter and remove in her sunglasses. And like, good on you, Jamel Jamel sweater consumer. You know? <laughs> <laughs> like, Why not?
1: Why not? All right. Well, um, certainly if you purchased uh, any of the um, aforementioned items, we'd love to hear from you. Um, otherwise, uh, let's move on. All right. Now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse. Jamel, what, uh, what do you have?
0: I have not gotten in the mail, but it's on the way. But it's the um, Criterion release of Spike Lee's Malcolm X. Uh, it's, it's a 4K uh, restoration. So sort of, uh, I think, scanned from the original camera negative, sort of like remastered the whole nine yards. Um, I'm really looking forward to watching it. And uh, I'm just recommending it because I think I, I think biopics have like fallen out of style for the most part. Um, uh, and, and Malcolm X is like one of the films and spikes, you know, uh, filmography that I think people really respect. Um, but not necessarily everyone's really like stuck with it. It's like a three hour, it's like an Epic. It's like three hours long, but I, I, re- I had rewatched it last year and I've seen it a couple times, and I came away once again struck not just by the sheer ambition of it to tell the story of a very complicated man's life in, like the, in just the confines of a film, um, but the extent to which it is such, and I don't think Spike gets enough appreciation for this, it's such a love letter to classic Hollywood. Spike Lee like very clearly loves Hollywood of the 50s and the 60s and the 40s, and that film um, has... Sort of homages and touchstones to those decades, Uh, beginning as sort of like a inner-city gangster picture. It has not a musical number, but sort of a big dance number that's like very reminiscent of like MGM in the fifties. In School Days, has that like phenomenal dance number that it's just sort of like Spike. It feels like to me saying, "Give me money to make a big musical." but Malcolm X has some of that. It's like a six, an early 60s style prison picture. There are like glimpses of Lawrence of Arabia at the end. It's just like such it's such a mishmash of styles and genres and ambition um, uh, that I, I I continuously find remarkable, I think it's like one of the great American movies, like just, you know, period and for, and for my money, it's my favorite Spike Lee film. So, it's so all will say you should watch Malcolm X if you've never seen it. Just really Like, put away your phone, put away your iPad, your laptop. Like, you shouldn't be doing that anyway when you're watching a movie. But, like, for this, put it away and watch the movie on as big a screen as you can manage. Um, And if you are a maniac like myself and spend all your money on uh, uh, 4K Blu-rays, you should pick up the 4K Blu-ray because those things look great. And it's you know it's going to be it's often like the, the, the best possible way to experience um, an older movie like that, barring being able to see like a thirty five millimeter print on on a proper screen.
2: I have not seen that movie. It's a it's a hole in my Spike Lee canon. So I, I, I will take your advice and watch it asap.
1: Yeah, absolutely. All right, uh, Julia, what do you have?
2: Okay, I must start with a question, Jamel. Are you watching Andor?
0: I am watching Andor.
2: Okay. My endorsement is episode 10 of Andor, which came out a couple weeks ago. Um, It's a great episode in a bunch of ways. Uh, There's a kind of exciting rebellion set piece. There's a fraught, uh, tense drama among the financers of the rebellion. Um, But also, the episode ends with an incredible monologue performed by Stellan Sarsgaard who plays kind of the uh, guy who's coordinating this the fledgling rebellion. And I don't think of the soliloquy as like a modern form, right? That's like Shakespeare wrote them. They're kind of in older plays. Dialogue these days is a bit more rat-a-tat. And if you are giving a long speech, it probably means your thing is fucked. Like (laughs) the script isn't good. Like in general... I think the best screenwriters avoid having characters speechify because it so often sounds wooden, feels wrong, doesn't seem right. I'm very curious for your view of this soliloquy, Jamal, if you're caught up on, on the season.
0: Uh, I this loved it. I <laughs>
2: <laughs> blew my mind. Like, I-, I-, I feel like it should actually be taught next to Shakespeare soliloquies. Like it's I- an incredible piece of writing and performance.
0: I gotta say, like I, I, it's it's incredible. I mean, I, I don't want to spoil anything, but it's it's in in short, it's him sort of like he's meeting with a uh, a, a double agent in the Empire, and it's um, he's asking this guy to just sacrifice more, like do more for the rebellion. And this guy's like, "Well, what have you done for the rebellion?" And then he just like goes on this tear where he's like, um, he's basically sort of like, "I've destroyed my inner life in order." To make this happen, and the some of the lines in there are just unbelievable. I've made my mind a sunless place. I share my dreams with ghosts. You know, I live my life for sunrise that someone else will see.
1: I yearn to be a savior against injustice without contemplating the cost. And by the time I look down, there's no longer any ground beneath my feet. What is my What is my sacrifice?
2: It's so good. And and the other thing that's amazing about it is how it starts. And it reminded me what's powerful about good soliloquies, which is it's watching someone you speaking to think. And in this case, it's sort of thinking out loud and it's sort of thinking for persuasion. But the first word, so he gets asked, what have you sacrificed? And you watch Stellan Sarsgaard's face and he pauses and he... Things. and you're like for a moment as watching you're like oh no he's stumped him he's behind the scenes he's the spy master he's not on the front he he isn't sacrificing like you you you're like is he about to cop to not sacrificing as much like what you have the suspense like what is his answer does he have a good answer to this double agent who's who's got such a hard lot and the first word he says is calm like the thing he sacrificed first is calm and i don't want to spoil more about what he says or overhype it too much although too late for that but I love starting with calm because calm, you're like, okay, calm, like for the rebellion, like maybe calm is fine. Like maybe it's fine that you sacrificed calm, but it's, it's calm, kindness, kinship. And then it goes into the, yeah, I mean, also by the way, Jamal and I are like reciting this fucking speech from memory because it's so fucking good. And also because I it, rewound it like three times
0: to watch it. I immediately rewound it. I was like, I need to watch this again, but the, the other line that like, stuck in my head i burn my decency for someone else's future like that that's not only writing we don't normally get in like genre shows period or like a star wars right sort of just like that's just like great writing period it's just like great it's so evocative
2: and it all works. And it sounds, I'm sure it sounds overwrought if you're not caught up, Steve, but it's so good. And I will, I'm going to go on record here and I'm going to call out Ms. Dana while she's traveling for her book. Somehow we talked about Reboot and this show in rapid succession. And the takeaway I had is that Dana thinks Reboot is one for the ages and Andor is so so. And I just want to say that as I dig further into Andor, this is the wrongest opinion held on the podcast and Steve talked about Taylor Swift and we will return to this when she returns to the show but like she's got like this show is so good you have to be watching it if you are not I feel like Jamal this show is sort of up your alley I think the show is kind of not up my alley take it from the the joint uh, force here <laughs> you got to be watching this like it, it's just incredible what they're doing that's my endorsement thank you jamal i'm so glad you uh you also are a fan <laughs> fun to dissect it with you
1: uh, oh my god I, I i just can't compete with that <laughs> i mean I, I liked a song Mine's a song. <laughs> You've
2: got good songs. You've always got good songs up uh, your sleeves. Don't, don't sleep on your condes- song.
1: Don't condescend to me, Julia. It's just not necessary. <laughs> it's fine. I like this song. I don't know much about it. A friend sent it to me. It is called Super Rich Kids. It's new. It's from Trio SR9 and a collaboration with Malik DJ O U D I Judy, uh, whose music I really like. Too many joy rides in Daddy's car. Too many white lines and white lines Super rich kids with nothing but loose ends Super rich kids with nothing but fake friends
0: Real love
1: All right, it's just a song. It doesn't have Shakespearean resonances that I'm familiar with yet, but it's, uh, it's fun. Check it out. Jamel, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, as always, just it just is great to hear from you.
0: My pleasure, as always.
1: And uh, Julia, thank you so much. That was fun. That was good. So fun. You will find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page. That's at slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com. Our introductory music is by the same composer who did the music for, she said, Nicholas Bertel. We're
2: so and proud. and or, by the way. <laughs>
1: Oh. <laughs> oh my! God. that guy's that guy's everywhere um, and uh, our production assistant is Jessica Balderrama our producer is Cameron Drews for Jamel Bowie and Julia Turner I'm Stephen Metcalf thank you so much for joining us we will see you soon